peace of mind, deep abiding peace in their heart uh, when it really didn't make sense to have peace. When the circumstances of their lives were really bad and uh, out of control and really desperate, but they somehow had peace. Nothing fabricated, nothing manufactured nor faked, but deep down peace of mind and heart. Um, in, in the many times, uh, years ago when I was a pastor, I've seen people in the middle of unbelieving suffering, physical and emotional pain, even facing death, but they still had hope and they still had joy and they still had peace. I've, I'd like to talk to you about that very peace this morning. I, I, I know um, that we all would like to have that peace and um, we all would like to know what that uh, is like sometimes as life is out of control. Uh, we, we look for that peace. During the pandemic, peace. During the triple-demic, COVID and RSV and the flu, peace. In times of war and floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and economic downturns and recessions, peace. When we're suffering, peace. When we are wronged and injustices have taken place, being rightfully angry at sin but still having deep peace. I can think of people in places where I've served, even here in this church, um, who faced all these kinds of trials and suffering and disappointments, hopes dashed, dreams shattered, and still peace. The main idea of this morning's message is uh, for us to trust God in every situation and that he promises to give you as you trust in him peace. Supernatural, unbelievable, unexplainable peace. Now what I'm not talking about is being out of touch with reality, so out of touch that you don't, when you're not really aware of what's going on around you. I am talking about being touch, being in touch with reality. Most of our lives, most of the time in our lives, we're not actually in touch with reality. We're often not in touch with the reality of something and someone greater than ourselves who is always in control, no matter what the circumstances. It's easy for us to lose that perspective and our problems become bigger than the reality of God. He gets it. He knows how bad it is. And he gets us. He loves us and wants to give us his peace. Whenever I see my circumstances as bigger than God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I will never have peace. We can't have peace, temporary peace, uh, in the bottle, in pills, in losing ourselves in the fantasy world and getting lost in a relationship or pouring ourselves into our work. Those can give us temporary peace, but those things fast, pass away very quickly. We can have counterfeit and deceitful peace by running away from our problems in, in so many ways. But that's not the kind of peace that really lasts. That's not the kind of peace that really holds your heart and your mind. So let me tell you about God's peace. Uh, this is a big uh, word in the Bible. Um, 
And Billy set us up uh, to understand this concept. Peace, like hope and joy, the other two words that we have looked at in this season, are attitudes of the heart that are given to God's people when they put their trust in God and his promises. Hope is a confident expectation that God will do what he has promised that's based on his faithful character, based on unexpected and undeserved signs that God gives, based on his unfailing word. Psalm 42, uh, one of my favorite psalms. Psalm 42 has this constant refrain where the psalmist is asking himself these questions. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And then he responds, put your hope, put your trust in God. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope, your confidence in God, and you will not be disappointed. Peace is a hard attitude of the person who trusts in God in response to God's promises. Um, in Galatians chapter 5, we find out that as the Holy Spirit is in us and, and dwells in us, uh, his work in our lives produces what the scriptures call fruit. And uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. I was fascinated to, to learn as I was uh, studying this uh, word that uh, peace is also a greeting. Uh, part of almost every greeting in the New Testament, every book opens with grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes they also end talking about peace. Um, the book of Isaiah, where we're going to be in just a moment here, talks about uh, peace 25 times. That's the most in any, in any book in the, in the Bible. So what is peace? How do we define it? Peace is wholeness. Uh, in the Old Testament, the word is shalom. We're familiar with that word, uh, shalom, which means peace, wholeness, completeness. It's, un it's understood as the absence of trouble or conflict. But it's really so much more than just the absence of problems. Peace is well-being, being well spoken of, well thought of. It's rest from labor, toil, and stress, and strain. Peace is the tranquility of the heart and the mind that cannot be moved, shaken, or disturbed by any fearful, difficult, or distressing circumstances. In many contexts in the scriptures, peace is synonymous with rest. Peace is given, the promise of peace is given in the middle of times of crisis. Um, in Isaiah, where Billy was, and uh, he basically spoke to us about Isaiah 5 through 8, and I'm going to pick up there in chapter 9. Uh, peace is given in times of crisis. In Isaiah chapter 9, really going back to chapter 8, uh, King Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, found out that the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern part of Israel, along with uh, the king of Syria, had combined together to, to conspire together to attack him. And he was terrified. They had joined forces, and now they were going to go to war with him. And the prophet came, Isaiah came with a word from the Lord, and that word involves peace. Um,
already the king of Assyria had come down and inflicted pain and conflict on the northern part of the nation Israel. Uh, the par portion of the na nation that is actually mentioned in the passage, Zebulun and Naphtali, those two tribes in the northern part of Israel in the Galilean region. And uh, they had already seen the, the, the result of the, the judgment of God because they had walked away from God, hadn't been trusting God, and uh, had gone about their own way. And Billy talked a little about the, the idolatry and the child sacrifice and all the things that were going on. And as a result, God brought judgment. Um, I enjoyed reading from uh, multiple versions of the scripture. And as they described uh, God's judgment, it, it, in, in ASV, the version that most of us use, it talks about God's hand still being extended. But in some of the other versions, it, it really depicts God's anger and wrath at, at sin, and it talks about God's fist is still ready to strike. And that's really powerful, really powerful. So the people in those parts of the nation Israel in the northern part of the kingdom had already come under God's judgment, and so they were dwelling in the darkness and the gloom of being under the oppression of another nation. And it is in that context that uh, Isaiah 9 opens. And it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Naphtali and the land of Zebulun with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Part of the judgment was that the Gentiles had overrun this area. And so they were under this rule of Gentile nations. And so Galilee of the Gentiles was not looked upon as a good thing. Galilee in region was not looked upon as a good thing. When in the New Testament they say, can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what they're talking about. Nothing good comes from this country where the, where the Gentiles have overrun us. And Isaiah uh, does this thing where he he speaks about God's judgment on sin, but also this future hope. This future hope. And this passage is about that future hope. The people who dwelt in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the land of darkness, will, the light will shine on them, and the nation shall be multiplied and increase in their gladness. They will be glad in your presence with the gladness the gladness that comes when it's time for harvest or the gladness that happens when men return from war and they bring back all the spoils of war. This will be a time of rest, of rest, of peace. So much so that all the clothing that was used for war will be rolled up and put in the fire and burned. Or a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Emphasis on a child and on a son. Interestingly enough, um, Isaiah's family, he says in chapter 8, were, were signs. Behold, I and the children, verse uh, 8, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel 
from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. His children were signed. He had two children. Uh, one was, hope I get this right, Maher Shalal Hazbaz. <laughs> uh, and his name means, uh, oh, his name means that God had promised that by the time this child, Maher Shalal Hazbaz, is able to say mommy and daddy, these two, na- these two nations that have come against Israel will be wiped away, will be destroyed. They're a sign. A son who is a sign. His second son, Emmanuel, means God is with us. Here's Isaiah in chapter 8. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. He's talking to the nations outside of Israel. Gird yourselves up and yet be shattered. Um, Gird yourselves up and yet be shattered. Devise a plan, but it will be thwarted. State a proposal, but it will not stand for God is with us. In the context of, of a crisis, these nations are out to get us. Even our friends, our brothers, the northern part of Israel, they're still part of God's people, Israel, yet they have conspired against us. God is with us, and in a very short time, not very long, before this child is very old, old enough to say mommy and daddy, they'll be wiped away. A child is born, Isaiah 9. A son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness even from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, the passionate commitment, another version says, of the Lord of heaven's armies will accomplish this. Uh, What we see in... uh, the passages that we're going to look at this morning, um, this one in Isaiah and, and then in Luke, uh, and, and other passages, that there's a, a time when hostility and alienation will be gone forever, where um, enemies will be friends and brothers, where predator and prey will live together in peace. This is the message of Isaiah, where righteousness and justice will be the normal order of the day, and the glory, uh, I'm sorry, the glory of the Lord, the knowledge of who God is and how great he is will fill the earth the same way as the seas are filled with water. So in the context of judgment, in the context of uh, crisis, God brings a message of peace. And he gives a sign, a son. As Isaiah had sons, he gives a sign. And uh, for God's people Israel, a son, Isaiah chapter 9, will be given. And this is a great passage about Jesus, the Messiah. He is born in Galilee and lives in Nazareth. And he's going to be the light that shines in that part of the nation. 
there's, a, there's a, a, a tension. There's a sense of the already and there's a sense of the not yet. And, and that tension is something that the people of God have to wrestle with. So there are some things about the promise of peace and the promise of a son that are fulfilled right now. First coming. And then there are other aspects of the promise of peace that are fulfilled later. Second coming. But in the meantime, what God expects from his people from the Old Testament all the way on to now is to put their trust in him. He will give them his peace. Problem is they didn't have peace, yes. They were still under Roman rule. The Romans were cruel and treated those they governed harshly. harshly. They killed anyone who might be perceived as a threat to their sense of law and order and their sense of peace. They used one of the most cruel and inhumane forms of punishment and torture and death called crucifixion. The Jewish people desperately wanted to be free from the rule of the Romans, but trusting in God's promise of peace through this child would mean that they would have to wait on the Lord to fulfill his promise. They would have to trust in God even when they couldn't see what he was doing and how he was going to accomplish what he had promised. In uh, Luke chapter 2, the shepherds are out in the fields watching over their flocks at night, and the angel of the Lord appears to them. And the glory of the Lord shines all around them, and they were afraid. And the angel says, I bring you good news of great tidings, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And he will give you peace. Glory to the God, they began to say. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. So Israel, uh, in the time when Jesus is born, uh, they're looking for a Messiah, they're looking for a Savior, they're looking for a Deliverer to, to cast off this Roman rule. Time of crisis, time of desperation and God's promise is peace and that peace comes through a child the child Jesus peace also puts an end to uh, puts forever an end to broken relationships and animosity and alienation. Another definition for shalom or peace. The way it's supposed to be. The way God originally designed it. So peace for the nation Israel is that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom would be reunited as brothers. And they would have rest from their quarrels and their fighting. We go all the way back to Adam and Eve and their first two sons. They're in conflict. In fact, Cain killed his brother Abel. And from the time of the fall, the time of sin entering into the world till now, people are at odds with one another. This hostility, conflict. And Jesus brings peace. Ephesians chapter 2. We're 
We're all familiar with the first part of Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about being saved by grace through faith because it's a gift of God. And then he talks about this gulf between these two groups of people, Jews and everybody else, Gentiles. This conflict, this alienation and hostility. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off and you who've been brought near by the blood of Christ, uh, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made, made both groups into one and broken down the barrier, the dividing wall between us by establishing in his flesh uh, by, I'm sorry, by abolishing in his flesh the hostility, the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinance, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. The Jews saw themselves as having recipients of, of God's law, and because of God's law, uh, it wasn't just rules to live by for God's people, it was also moral, it was also right and wrong. And so, because they were right, there was this division between themselves and everybody else. We could spend a lot of time talking about that because we in the church deal with the same kinds of issues. Where There's a big gulf, there's a big barrier between us and everybody else who isn't in the church because it's easy to feel like we're the ones doing right and everybody else is doing wrong. And it's easy to get self-righteous, it's easy to get judgmental, and I think our culture sees that and reflects that back to us in, in many ways. But it says that Jesus came and brought peace. And this is a model for us. This is an example for us. This is really the truth that, that ought to guide how we act and how we relate to one another. Because if Jesus can, div can break down that dividing wall, then there is no dividing wall between the people of God, the people who claim to know God, and everybody else. At the cross, we all stand just as guilty, just as condemned, just as in need of salvation, just as in need of peace with Almighty God who holds his fist out in judgment against those who will not obey him, will not trust him. He's established peace. Jesus has established peace, rest from conflict. Rest from hostility, rest from alienation. Because at the foot of the cross, we are all the same. We are in need, desperate need of salvation. Ephesians, says, uh, Ephesians 2 says he might reconcile both of them in one body to God in the cross by having put to death the hostility. And this is a quote from Isaiah. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to you who were near. For through him, <clears throat> Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to our one Father. So then you are no longer strangers, aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints of God and are of God's household. Peace puts an end to broken relationships, animosity, hostility, and alienation. Lastly, Philippians chapter 2 
Peace comes from God supernaturally. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6 says, be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. I, I kind of work in the field of counseling, and uh, the number one, the number one issue that counselors face today is anxiety. COVID-19 and the pandemic and lockdowns and all the rest has just created this anxious spirit in people all over. And Paul says in Philippians 2, interestingly enough, in the context of conflict between two people, two ladies in the church, he says, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The act of prayer itself is an expression of faith. Prayer is done with the unconditional certainty, the confident expectation that God will hear and God will answer. Uh, I picked up a couple of quotes. The distinctive feature of early Christian prayer is the certainty of being heard. This derives directly from faith in the fatherly love of God and is continually strengthened by, by remembering Jesus and his prayer to his loving Heavenly Father. Uh, Another quote, the unshakable confidence of faith that believers have uh, the heart, inside the heart of every man and woman is the full confidence and faith in God that there is nothing that he or she cannot bring to the Father in prayer. Even the most trivial things are worthy of prayer since everything is of importance in this human life because all of it belongs to God. Jesus taught his disciples to pray to a loving Heavenly Father who hears and answers prayers. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but by everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests, your requests with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says in verse 7, And the peace of God, that passes all understanding will guard or protect your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 23 and verse 3, you will keep the person in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You will keep the mind that's steadfast in faith in perfect peace because they trust you, another version says. Okay, so let's make this personal. Um, some of you know this story, uh, but back in the fall of 1986, October 4th, I woke up with a sense that something was going to go wrong. Can't explain it, I just had this feeling that I was going to get bad news. My mother had had uh, breast cancer, and I thought, well, maybe I'm going to get a phone call from her. I really thought I was going to get a phone call from her, uh, and that the cancer was back. And so I prayed. 
went to James 1, uh, meditated on James 1, which talks about counting, counting it all joy when we encounter various trials. For the trying of our faith produces patience. And the result of that patience is that we are complete, mature in our faith. I meditated on that, thought about that. I was, as they say, prayed up and ready for the bad news, ready for that phone call. It never came. So the day went on. I went about my business, my activities. And in the evening, uh, some friends and I went to another friend's house at the Tall Timbers Trailer Park out there in Factorville. And on our way back, uh, I was in the car behind the driver. And I remember it was about 11.45, and I was tired. I closed my eyes. I leaned against the, the door, closed my eyes. And as we crossed Route 6, a car came out of nowhere, speeding. And bam. Uh, We were crossing Route 6, coming back to Clark Summit, and out of nowhere. The car, the car that I was in took a direct hit on the door that I was leaning on with my eyes closed and resting. Our car did a three 360 turns before it came to a stop. We were all stunned. When I came to consciousness, uh, I was in searing, terrible pain. The fire company came out, the police came, an ambulance came. They decided I was in too bad shape for them to take me to the hospital, so a, a mobile intensive care unit came out. Got to the hospital, and the first thing the doctor in the ER said to me is, young man, you should be dead. I found it ironic because instead of receiving that phone call about bad news, that night I was making that phone call. I called my mom, who was an emergency room nurse for 24 years, and told her that I had a broken neck and that uh, I had broken ribs and a whole bunch of other things, and they wanted to put screws in my head. Didn't make sense to me, but that's what they wanted to do. Uh, it made even less sense when, when I started to feel the pain of that. Um, but I want to tell you that, that because of being prayed up and ready, there was something supernatural that happened in that whole experience. Although I was in pain, I had peace. Supernatural, unexplainable peace. And that peace that God gave me lasted through the whole process of recovery. Oh, it was difficult and, and it was hard. Um, but because I took my requests and my burdens of my heart to the Lord and gave them to God and trusted him with Whatever would happen, he gave me peace. The peace that, Paul says, passes all understanding. That peace was protecting my heart and protecting my mind because I was trusting completely in him. Um, one of the other things that happened as a result of that, I had a traumatic brain injury, right? And uh, one of the things that I remember, remember, Kind of a funny word, because when you have a brain injury, you can't remember, right? One of the things I do remember is my inability to, to speak or think in a complete sentence. Like I'd get halfway through a thought, and then I'd be lost. 
And I remember the one thing that gave me comfort, and I had people do this when they came to visit me. I had them read scripture because it helped my mind to focus. It helped me to think in complete sentences. But I had peace. And I can't explain the peace I had other than I think what Philippians talks about here. I was ready. I was wrong about the circumstances, as so many of us are. I can't know the future, but God knows the future. We can't know the future, but God knows the future. And it is in him that we trust. And as a result of trusting in him, he gives us his peace. So what does God want us to do in response to what we've heard? Peace and hope and joy are attitudes of the heart that come to the person who puts their trust in God. God wants you and I to trust him in every circumstance. And if you're like me, there are times when we forget, when we lose perspective and fail to remember that God is in control. But if we will put our trust in him, he promises to give us peace. Peace to those who put their hope, their confident expectation in God and his promises. Peace comes to those who continually place their faith and trust in God and his faithful character. Peace looks to the signs that God has given. And in the Old Testament, he gave Maher, Shaul, Hasbaz, and Emmanuel. And for us, he gives the greater sign, Jesus, the son who was given. And peace comes to those who look to God in prayer. Some of you might remember the, the chorus that came out in the 80s, I think it was. He is our peace who has broken down every wall. He is our peace. He is our peace. So cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. He is our peace. He is our peace. I don't know what you're facing, what circumstances you might uh, be in today, but no matter what it is, I do know that God wants you and I to trust him no matter what. And his promise is that we will not be disappointed. Your current situation may not change, but peace that comes from trusting in Jesus does not depend on our circumstances. Placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone, the one who took our penalty for our sin, by dying on the cross for our sin, so that we could have peace with God and end the hostility between us and God. You can have the free gift of forgiveness of your sins and eternal life if you simply place your faith in him. And there's nothing that you have to do. In fact, there's nothing that you can do because Jesus has done it all for you. That's really good news because we can never be good enough, no matter how good we are, no matter how good we have been. 
Jesus died that, lived that sinless life and died that sacrificial death, taking all of God's wrath for your sins and my sins so we don't have to face God's wrath for our sin. Now there's no more wrath for us because Jesus took it all. And he gives us his peace, not only peace with God, but because of that peace, we can be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Gracious God, uh, thank you again uh, for this opportunity to reflect on the shalom, the peace that you give, that you give us a glimpse of what the way it ought to be, the way it should be, the way you created life to be, where we would be at rest. And we look forward to that day when your son will return and rule and reign. And the characteristic of your government, the characteristic of your reign, will be peace. Pray that you help us to trust you in every circumstance along the way. And that as a result, you give us your peace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.